Good morning. Thank you for uh, praying for me in my trip to Shalom, New York, a couple weeks ago, down in New York City. Um, it was yet another interesting experience of learning and doing, and boy, was it hot. <laughs> so I, I want to start out by giving you a little bit of, of an idea of what the week went by. I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I have things that the Lord laid on my heart that I want to say from his word. So um, Saturday morning was a traveling day for me. I left at like 8.30 in the morning. Um, and it was a, it's like a three and a half hour, four hour train ride um, down by Amtrak, got into Penn Station, managed to figure out how to get a single ride on the subway on the E train, got over to Lexington where we were staying and our hotel checked in and um, did some things in the afternoon, uh, getting some supplies for the week to manage things a little bit easier. And then from five to nine, we were in introductions and training and logistics and all of that, and had the wonderful experience of hearing that uh, Kabbalah, which is one section of Judaism, and their greatest um, commentator in the Talmud, Rambam, are entirely based on Greek philosophy and totally twist the scriptures for what they say literally, uh, putting them under the auspices of Greek philosophy to, to explain them. So that was really disconcerting because both of those are large subjects, large impacts on the Jewish population. Um, Sunday was nine, uh, an eight to five day. Every morning we did breakfast, we did worship, we had some sort of devotional and then some sort of training session. So we had more about um, the beliefs of the ultra-Orthodox on, on Sunday, and then we were out to Bryant Park. And Bryant Park, I got to meet uh, Sebastian. So the Lord, the first day, ran me into several Catholic people. Not exactly what I'm in Shalom, New York for, which is all about reaching out to the Jewish community. Um, but I met Sebastian, and Sebastian threw me because here's a, a, a Catholic who's still practicing, and he's reading his Bible which is like an anomaly in my head. Um, so we had a good conversation. He was reading in Judges, started in Genesis, and had made it all the way to Judges, which most people, Genesis is great, Exodus is exciting, and Leviticus is, bam, the plane crashes. But he had made it all the way to, to Judges, and we had a good conversation about that, and I exhorted him to um, move on to Romans, <laughs> because he really needs Romans. Um, and then Monday again, breakfast, logistics, worship, training, and we were out um, to Williamburg, Williamsburg, Crown Heights, and Borough Park. Those are all ultra-Orthodox communities. Um, this was my, I knew that this was coming day, and I'm petrified of this, and I got to go along with my team lead, uh, Steve Schlesinger, as, as um, uh, a sidekick. I was the goy. And the, the reason for all the conversations, which was really kind of cool. So God took my uh, fear and set it aside and, and watched me watch Steve engage in conversation. And he's been at this for a long time. So it was a, a really good learning experience. Monday, nine, uh, I'm sorry, Tuesday, seven in the morning, we're out at, in the Diamond District handing out tracks. I think I handed out about 500 of these. 
in two hours. There were, there were four of us, um, lots of work, really hot, back for breakfast, training, and, and then we went out to King's Highway in Brooklyn, another on the edge of an ultra-Orthodox community where one of the Messianic congregations is also, and a huge Russian population out there. So we had a table that was set up with all kinds of stuff, uh, a book table, so English Bible, tracts, Jewish Bible, the book pursued. This was the most interesting day to me. This is the highlight day. I had a conversation near the end of the day. We're, we're underneath the, the subway trains and um, I had a conversation. There was a young boy over there. I was standing in front of the table on the sidewalk, the subway station's there. And this, this young boy's got a keep on, a, a yarmulke, and keeps looking back and he's like, so I go over with the track. I said, would you like one? He says, why would I take that? I can't hate myself. I, and, and, you know, I would have, a week before, would have had that, uh, that idea, but some of the training kind of covered that. And lo and behold, if you go look at the roots of communism, it was strongly supported by the Jewish community. And they ended up doing all of those pogroms to themselves with the support of that ideology. And he, like, his eyes lit up, like, oh, I'd never thought about that. And then he asked if I, I'm Jewish, and I said, no, I'm, I'm Gentile, but I, and I'm a believer in Jesus, or Yeshua, who I believe to be the Messiah, and I love the Jewish people. And his, guy's got, his eyes got big as saucers. So we had this great conversation about, can you have a relationship with Hashem like Abraham did? And he was like, I, I don't think I could do that. Abraham's... Abraham's sinless. I, I, I can't do that. I said, well, I don't, I don't think that that's true. That's not what I read in Genesis, but I know for a fact that Hashem wants to have a relationship with you just like Abraham. And it's like, his res response was, that would be great. So we had a conversation, and at the end I asked him if, if I could pray for him, and I asked if I could, if he, and he said yes, and I asked if he mind if I prayed in Yeshua's name because that's the way I pray. And he was okay with that. And I prayed over him and I asked God to open his eyes to what his, what his Hebrew scriptures say and teach him the way and show him how to walk and start a relationship with him. And so he was maybe a little bit younger than Jonathan in the back of my head I'm thinking, eh, I don't know if he's 18. And, Chosen People Ministry has a policy not to talk to children directly. So I kind of backed off. I didn't get all of his contact information the way we, we would want for an ongoing conversation. And I left him with that and he took some things off the table. So pray for Benjamin. Benjamin, at, at the end of it, he goes, this is the greatest day of my life. And I know that it isn't because the greatest day is still coming. But pray for Benjamin. And then um, Wednesday, a 9 to 9 day. So we went to uh, all the way out to 9 that day, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Wednesday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. And we were in Columbus Her Circle. Um, Columbus Cir Circle is near Trump International Tower. Uh, it's the c one corner of Central Park. And we were there and the Hare Krishnas were there, which was just, uh, we need to move away from here. Um, I talked with uh, Yarez and Rabet, who were from Austria, and it seemed like everyone we met was not from the U.S. 
and not from New York. Um, we had a long conversation with Kenneth. He said his name was Kenneth Blackard, but Blackard is a, like, a term that means scoundrel. I don't think that was his last name, but boy was he a, a hurting dude. And we ended up praying with him at the end. And at the very end, as we were walking back, I, I boldly went up to the Hare Krishna guy out front and I handed him a track and he took it. And I didn't take anything from him, so maybe he'll read it. Uh, and I circled back to talk, because Steve was talking with someone and I met um, somebody who was preaching. It looked like they were preaching the gospel. Come to find out they were preaching something. It sounded more like the law. And uh, they really were kind of against evangelicals because of their root in the reformers. So I left him with the thought that um, from the end of John, you know, when, when Jesus talked to Peter about, do you love me? At the end, Peter goes, and what about this guy? Right, speaking of John. And the response from Jesus was, don't worry about him, you follow me. And that's what I left that guy with, because he needed to have something other than everybody else is doing it wrong. Because criticism is not a spiritual gift in the Bible. And then the Thursday, again, 7 a.m., out in Grand Central Station, we got a bit rousted by this police out of there. And then we went to Herald Square, and we got rousted by the police because we were in private property, come to find out. So we moved outside of this opening, and then they came out with six people and saying, you're still on private property. And we're like, we didn't know. We moved outside the gate. He, he seemed to think it was okay, and we have this book table. So we ended up packing it up. And then we went out to uh, Washington Square Park and we were there uh, all afternoon and we, relief came and we went and got supper and then everybody descended on Washington Square Park and they did, we did track hand in, handing out and they did a concert right there in the middle of the park. And the park is right outside of N NYU and it used to be there were drugs in one quarter of the park and now it was openly being sold because it's legal in New York. So the park was darkness everywhere. And when we started praising God with music and song, all of that just kind of moved away. It was really cool to see. And, and uh, Ari, our, one of our team leads, had this fantastic long conversation with three Israeli men and one of them, I think it was his wife. There was a, one woman and three men and they had a fantastic conversation about Messiah. And then Friday was out in Herald Square again, hinting out tracks. It was a short day. And then we went to a Reformed Jewish synagogue, which was absolutely beautiful. The interior is beautiful. I have pictures if you want to see it later. Um, the music was like professional musicians, Broadway singers. It was absolutely gorgeous until the sermon. And the sermon, the, the, the lady Rabbi got up and talked about putting Moses on the couch and that Moses was getting out all his frustrations and anger in the book of Deuteronomy. So it was like, oh! <laughs> and then we went out for Shabbat dinner and that was the end. And Saturday was a tough, I, I intended to go to, um, to uh, the Messianic congregation in Brooklyn, but like all the subways to Brooklyn seemed to be down on Saturday, so I just came home. That was a trip, there's the trip. Oh, not too bad, less than 15 minutes, doing okay. 
So turn with me now to Matthew chapter 9, where we want to start talking about what I came home with and the burden that I shared with my Sunday school class on the first day back. So I apologize to my Sunday school students. You got to hear some of this again. Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 35 to 38. I'll read these and I'll comment on them. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is tr truly as plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So previously, there's a whole lot of ministry going on, lots of miracles. Matthew gets called, and at, right before this happens, he heals two blind men, and then he casts out a mute demon from a person. Now, the, Jew, the Jewish people in the Old Testament had a way of exercising demons out of people, very much like the Roman Catholic Church, where you interact with the spirit in that person, find out its name, and in the name of Hashem, cast him out, right? And the Roman Catholic Church would use the same procedure, except they Christianized it, right? So it's in Jesus' name, and the Roman Catholic Church would add all the saints and you know, all of that. Um, but a mute spirit is one that can't tell you its name. So when Jesus cast out the mute demon out of this person, suddenly he could start talking again, and it's a big row because nobody can do this but God. And the Pharisees responded here. This is in the Galil, and it gets worse further into, into, um, into Matthew. The Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. So officially, they were writing him off. He's not God. He is not the Messiah. He's doing this by the devil's power. He's casting out the devil. And it, it, by, the, by chapter 13 in Matthew, it becomes a solid position of leadership in Israel. And he finally moves to just preaching in, in parables to the people and then explaining it to his disciples. So right after this is when Jesus went about to all the cities and villages in the Galil, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So it's like, okay, you're going to say I'm doing this because of, of, of the prince of darkness. I'm doing it by his, his power. And he does all these miracles and teaches all this Torah to them. And it's after this that it says, but when he's, so he's, as he's going, right, at the end of all of this work, he's coming to a conclusion. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion. And the King James would say something like bowels of mercy. This is a visceral response in your gut. Like when your child falls and skins open their knees and you, you just like, your heart pours out and you have to run and help them. That's his mentality, right? He's got compassion on the people because they're like a sheep without a shepherd. 
The Pharisees are saying one thing, he's doing miracles, and they don't know who to follow. And they're just like wandering around, not knowing which way to go. And he has this response of compassion. But it came after he saw what was going on. Do you have compassion for the lost? Does it break your heart that people you know that live next to you, in your family, that you work with, that you see regularly in your community are lost and headed for hell? Does that hit you in the gut and bring you to tears? I went to New York to do work. This is the second time, right? New York is a huge population of Jewish people. It used to be the number one most populated region of Jewish people on the globe, right? That is now Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv has, oh, what's the number? I actually have the statistic. About 3.7 million people in the, in the Tel Aviv area, which represents about 19% of the Jewish population um, of the world but it's 94% of the population of the city. Now, New York City, and they consider that New York and the, the top of New Jersey and Pennsylvania is really that Jewish community. There's about 2.1 million people of Jewish descent in that area. It's only about 10%, 11% of the population, and it's only about 10 or 11% of the Jewish population worldwide. So Shalom New York was trying to reach 2.1 million. Chosen People Ministries in that area is trying to reach 2.1 million Jewish people and we had 25 people. And there's the picture. The fields are white unto harvest and the harvest is plentiful but the workers are just a few. And in compassion, Jesus, seeing the situation of the harvest, seeing the imbalance of the need to reap the fields, and reaping the fields is a short duration thing, right? And you got to get it because it's a dry season, and if your enemies can come and light a fire, there goes your crop. Or if there's a freaky rainstorm, it, it adversely affects the grain. So you, get, you hire laborers and you do the work quickly and you thresh it out and you store it. And the workers are few and Jesus gives them a command. It's a, a command of entreaty like we've talked about before. Literally, it's start beseeching or start pleading or start begging the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. So I tell you right now, I'm going to start praying for you. But this send forth laborers thing, the base Greek word is to throw or cast out. The concept of throwing overboard. So I'm going to ask God to throw you overboard into the field. Because we need to be in the fields. Because the need is way beyond our strength. Now, I don't know how much you think about the lost 
and I don't know how intentional you are about the lost, but we need to think about the lost and be intentional to share the gospel with people every single day. One of the gospels says, preach the gospel to every creature. Like if you need practice, start with your dog. And I know it's scary. It's scary to go to New York to talk to the Herodim, right? But if you don't go out into the field, you're neither sowing nor reaping. And when you go out, you don't go out alone. Because God's always there with you. And you know, he does things like he makes you the sidekick so it's not dependent on you in this field that you're scared about. And he gives you conversations with people from your background to talk about Catholicism, where you've come from, and point them to the way. Do you have a compassion for the lost? Because there's way more lost people than there are saved people. And all of them are marching toward a horrible end. Unless you and God do some work in their lives. And interesting, he starts with the concept of prayer. Beseech God for more laborers. And if you're going to beseech God for more laborers, it kind of means that you're there laboring. And surely if you're in the field laboring, you're going to beseech God to do work through you and in you and with you. So the concept of going, you see the schedule, go to Shalom, New York, try it. Let God rock your socks and show you things that you didn't expect. I'm not a charismatic, but I've seen God display his power. I've seen him change the open doors and, and change situations, like right there. And last time Jonathan and I relayed the, the whole train incident where what was normally an express train suddenly became a, a local train only for the period of this one conversation with a lady, Imshi, who that night was leaving to go back to India. And it was a local train stopping at every stop instead of only six on all of the stops until the conversation ended and then it switched back. It was her stop, she had to get off and it switched back to an express. God demonstrates his power. So the next thing that I, I want to bring up, there's a schedule here uh, of um, months and, and what's, what's involved in the agricultural cycle. So you can see in April there's a barley harvest, and if you didn't know that, Passover and first fruits happened there. So that's the beginning of the year from the viewpoint of, of of the Jewish calendar. And then May is the grain harvest and that's where Pentecost is. So there's a correspondence between the agricultural mindset and the feasts in the biblical Old Testament. 
and, and then there's June and July where they're tending vines, and August where they're tending and harvesting summer fruits, and then September and October is where Rosh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot come in, and that's the olive harvest. And one of the things that happens with Sukkot is that there's a prayer for rain. And in New Testament, sowing and reaping mentality, that's a prayer for the Holy Spirit to come and work on people's hearts and lives. And the next two months are the grain sowing season. Right? So you don't have harvest unless you have sowing. And, the, and sowing takes place in the rainy season when it's cold, when you don't want to go out into the field. And that verse, cast your bread upon the water, is talking about the sowing season. Because it's raining, and you're out there with the oxen, and you're trying to dig up the ground so it'll receive seed, and you're throwing seed like the, the parable of the sower, where you're pitching it wide, and some of it falls on the good soil, and some of it falls on the rocks, and some of it falls on the hardened trail uh, alongside the field, right? It goes everywhere, and some of it the birds take away, and you're throwing way more seed than produces actual fruit and grain. And then January, February is the later sowing seals. It's during the spring rains. And it's still cold, and it's wet, and it's miserable. But you know what? You gotta sow to have harvest. And then you get into flax cultivation and you're starting to walk up to the harvest seasons. Now, a lot of people think about evangelism from the viewpoint of, I'm gonna go out and witness I'm going to meet some random person that I've never talked to before. I'm going to tell them the Roman roads, and they're going to get saved. Has that happened with anybody here before? <coughs> My friend Joe, I've worked with since 2001. I've talked to him every day at lunch when we're together in the building since 2001. Now, you know, COVID changed that and we're all working remote, but we used to eat lunch almost every day together. And we would get into all kinds of conversations and he was pretty much um, agnostic, at least atheist, more atheist than agnostic. He was very evolutionary. We would talk about all kinds of things, talk about biblical things like predestination, um, go into deep philosophical subjects. And there's one day when I talked to Joe and I said, you know what? We had talked about God's long suffering towards Satan. How all of these millennia, he's given Satan's, Satan a chance to see that he's wrong. And eventually at the very end of the tribulation, he'll be taken from the battlefield and cast into the lake of fire. And we're walking back to, back to our desks. This maybe was in 2016. And I said, Joe, you know, you're just like Satan. God is long-suffering with you, and you need to make a decision about God and Jesus Christ. And then in 2018, he tells me, I believe now. Because that 
kicked off a searching in his heart and he started going and looking at things and looking at it from a different perspective and he somehow got an email thing that was a really good presentation of the gospel in many different ways, lots of different evidence, and he got saved. If you don't have the conversation with people, you're never going to get there. You need to sow and reap. And going out is more about sowing and reaping and cultivation and watering than it is about reaping. There's way more time spent in the field with those for, you know, sowing and reaping and cultivation and watering when it's not raining <clears throat> than there is in reaping. Reaping's like a few week process. At the end, if God blesses you with increase, and some people think that it's wonderful that we're, we're doing the gospel mission if people come and become members here from other churches. And while I'll never turn away somebody coming from another church, I always ask, why are you coming? Because we've had some come with their own agenda, right? So there's a bit, and if we're looking to go out to other churches and harvest their sheep into our congregation, that's not, that's not evangelism and that's not reaping, that's sheep stealing. So we need to be careful about that. Now, if they're getting poor teaching and they come here and they get, get good teaching and they want to become a member, hooray, then welcome to the community brother, sister, right? But we need to do evangelism and evangelism isn't just reaping. Evangelism is sowing and cultivation and reaping in due time. But you know, our mission, and we talked about this in Sunday school, is not evangelism, it's making disciples. And making disciples is a much bigger mission than just evangelism. It starts with evangelism. And it goes much further than that. So those are thoughts and burdens upon my heart. Now I'd like you to turn over to um, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived or do not be led astray. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows of the Spirit will reap, uh, of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Now this context is about the things that I do in my life, the things that I engage in. Are they oriented towards the flesh, the old man? Or are they oriented towards my new human spirit and the spirit of God and holiness, right? But there's an axiom, there's an axiom here. It's a law of slow, sowing and reaping. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap things of everlasting life. So when you go out sowing... In a sense of evangelism, what are you sowing? If I go out sowing things of the flesh, 
like conversations about the Red Sox or their favorite Marvel movie or politics or anything else of the world, am I going to reap eternal things from it? No. If I go out sowing spiritual things, asking people about the gospel, asking people about what do you think this verse is saying, trying to give them the word of God, I might reap eternal things. Because remember the parable of the sower, you don't know what ground you're dealing with, right? So if you go out and you're always talking about everything else but the gospel and but God's word, you're never going to harvest. And if you go out talking about the gospel and talking about scriptural things, you might, if God gives the increase, reap a harvest. That's the law that we need to think about. And the bottom line is, it's really easy to talk about all of this world of subjects, right? It's really easy to talk about your favorite video game. It's really easy to talk that, about that brand new New York bestseller. It's really easy to talk about how angry you are with the government, right? But none of that yields spiritual fruit. So we need to be intentional to bring these things, these spiritual things, up in conversation. And you know what? It's not comfortable until it becomes comfortable. You know, it's not comfortable to run a marathon but you can work your way up to being able to run a marathon. It's not comfortable to go and sow and cultivate and water. Talk to my wife, she does a lot of this in her life, right? She comes in at the end of the day like I think she's gonna fall over. Any of you who are gardeners understand how much work there is in the garden that goes into those crops that you finally get at the end of the harvest. And, and frankly, I'm, here's my cynicism, boy, those are the most expensive vegetables I've ever eaten. They're wonderful, honey. All right, so that's one set of rules. Now turn back a little bit to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. There's another axiom here. So, I've been through this passage before. This, pas this passage is talking about laying up gifts for people, right? Your, your monetary giving to the needs. But again, there's a principle here. So in verses 7 and 8, So let each one of you, as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful literally a hilarious giver. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm starting one verse late. 
Verse 6, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then verse 7, so let each one of you as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The axiom is that verse 6, right? If you sow a little, you might reap a little. If you sow generously, you might reap generously. Actually, it says if you sow a little, you will reap only a little. But if you sow bountifully, you should reap bountifully. And I go back to the picture of the parable of the sower. Lots of seed is going out, right? Now, when you're a Jewish farmer, seed is expensive, right? Especially the grain, because some of that you eat. So you try to buy, your, buy how much you're going to sow so that you have enough to eat through all the, all the season until the next harvest. And, and methods of sowing have gotten more intricate and mechanical, so I place seed only where it's going to grow well. But the parable of the sower, he's throwing it. You know what? The seed that we're throwing doesn't cost us anything. It's free. It's abundant. It's so abundant, you could spread seed over every soil in every person's heart multiple times over. All it takes is time and effort. It takes a want to. It takes a, I need to, because God sent me to do this. If I or we do not sow, we will not reap. If I or we sow a little, we will maybe reap a little. If I or we bountifully sow, then we should reap some. Now think about it. We're called to make disciples. I should at least replace myself for the next generation of the church. But if I want to inhabit the gates of my enemies, I need to be Old Testament, and I need to have a huge family. Currently, Western culture is, due, is on a clock ticking to death. Right? Because we're not even having two children per family anymore. And eventually, Western culture is going to die. The same is kind of true of this church. If we don't replace ourselves, there will be no more Sovereign Grace Church. Because this isn't the church. We're the church. Interesting, after the first passage, Christ commissioned the 70 and sent them out two by two. I'm going to be praying for you that God throws you out of the church into the harvest field to sow and cultivate and reap. Now, I say that, and I want you to understand why I'm going to pray that for you. 
Because there's, there's a certain subset of, of, of Christianity, even in the evangelical church, who thinks that there's one person in this church who sows and reaps. It's our pastor. We pay him to do that, right? But I want to prove to you with, from Scripture that that is absolutely wrong. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gave the 120 a plan right before he ascends. He says in Acts chapter 1, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still were thinking that he was going to conquer the Romans. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses, literally martyrios, martyrs, to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Don't worry about when we're overthrowing the Romans. That's in God's timing, and only he knows, he said in another place. You stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Because he already told them that he promised them that, right? And that's Pentecost. That's only coming a short while later. You know, maybe it's less than 40 days at this point. And then once the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to witness in Jerusalem and Judea, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, and up to Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, and then to the othermost parts of the earth. You're going to go into the, go to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. He told them right here. So then Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit comes and Peter and the 120 go out and they're talking to people about the gospel and people are hearing them in their own native language and Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people are reaped. And a little while later, 5,000 are reaped. And a little while later, a number that they don't number because it's so big. And now there's a messianic community in Jerusalem, right? And they're having so many problems that they create deacons to deal with the widows because the widows of, of the Hellenistic Jews aren't being treated the same as those of the Judean Jews because there's a little bit of a we don't know who you are thing going on. So deacons are made so that the apostles don't have to do it because they're writing, we think of it as teaching scripture, they weren't teaching scripture, they were starting to write scripture, the New Testament. And after a little while, in Acts chapter 7, and I'm not going to read the verses, what happens? Stephen's brought before the council, and Stephen stands up and says, by wicked hands you took the Messiah and killed him. And that didn't go over well with the Sanhedrin. They took him outside, and Paul's holding the coats, and they stone him to death. And he's like, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And there's the first seed of the church, the blood of the martyr. So in Acts chapter 8, and this is the important passage I want you to see. 
Acts chapter 8, now Saul was contenting to his, Stephen's death. At, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, because they're all still there. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So the multitudes fled, and the apostles stayed. And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over them. As for Saul, he made havoc in the church, entering every house and dragging men off and women, off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered, therefore those who were scattered, those are the not apostles, right? Went everywhere preaching the word. So who took the gospel to Judea and Samaria? All of you. Not him. Now, he's one of you, so that, that's a weird part of the church, right? So he, he knows that he has to go too. And he stands here and he preaches to us and he preaches to all those who listen who don't know the gospel that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. But that's the message you're supposed to call to carry out of these doors. That's the message you're supposed to... So, and I'm supposed to so, and hopefully we get to reap too. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, tells us something very, very important about our beloved pastor. Ephesians past, pastor, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, and he himself gave some to be apostles, Nope, you're not an apostle. And some, some prophets, well, you might be a prophet, but I think most of that's done. And some evangelists, no, you're not an evangelist. Evangelist is spelt the same way that church planters spelt. If you, if you have a question about that, look what happens to Stephen, one of the first deacons in the book of Acts. You go a little ways and he's got a church in his house. You have a church in your house yet? Uh, he's not an evangelist. And some pastors and teachers. There it is. He's our pastor teacher. And his, these gifted men are for the equipping of the saints. So he's our chief logistics specialist to equip us as an army to go and do the work. And I would... Say he has a second role, he's the chief corpsman to bandage up our wounds coming back from the field. And it's the saints, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministries. The saints do the work of the ministry. For, and the ministry is for the edifying of the body of Christ. So he's supposed to equip us. He's supposed to bind up our wounds. He's supposed to teach us. That's part of the, the gifting, right? Pastor, teacher. He's supposed to feed us and care for us. We get to do the work. We get to go out. 
Now, I hope this is cleared up in your mind because we need to go reach the Pioneer Valley. Start by praying. Start by going somewhere like Court Square and look at how many people pass you in the time that you're there. You could even go with tracks. Almost zero interaction with tracks. Here, this is for you. Jonathan, is it easy to give out tracks? It's like really easy. Now maybe Springfield is different and maybe people will give you a hard time but, you know, hey, take one. Hey, come on, they're free. You can take one. If I could find, if I could find videos of Uncle Izzy, Izzy, like, is just shameless in giving out tracts. He's so entertaining in the way he gives out tracts that almost everybody takes one. And he'll go, oh, you don't want one? How about you, ma'am? And, and she'll take one, he'll go, and the guy will be like, what? Hey, not you, you said no. It's not hard, but you have to be intentional. Do you have tracks in your car? When you go out to dinner, you could leave a track. Now, if you're gonna go out to dinner and leave a track, leave a really good tip. This is not the tip, even though it's priceless. Right? So these are things on my heart because we need to reach people. We have discipleship that we've started, reading programs and discipleship, so that we can get all of us in the scripture on the same page that maybe we can, we can start having conversations with ourselves and be comfortable with talking about spiritual things among ourselves. And like Romans says many times at this point, you can't give out what you, if, you can't give this track out unless you have it. Right? You can't give out a word of scripture if there ain't nothing up here and you don't have your Bible. How are you going to give out the gospel unless you can articulate it? And all it takes, I mean, some of the easy things are, you know, we do surveys. Are you aware that there's been a significant spike in anti-Semitism incidents in the last year? Buh, I think you have to be in, with your head in the ground not to see that. Including here in New York City, even shootings at synagogues in Pittsburgh and San Diego. That's the first question. It's kind of like yes or no. In your opinion, what motivates anti-Semitism? Now you're in a conversation. Oh, I think it, uh, you know, it's too much TV. And they may say something totally crazy. Do you know what the Bible says about God's relationship with the Jewish people? Now, when you're talking to a Jewish person, now you're stepping into holy ground, right? Do you think the New Testament is anti-Semitic? Because they do. They think that Christians are anti-Semitic because they see it as a holocaust of assimilation. They don't, they don't get that we're trying to, to help them see their Jewish Messiah out of their scriptures. You need to be intentional. You need to take this not as, oh, that's a nice sermon. That was very entertaining. 
Don't say that to me. <laughs> Do something with it. 